0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm going to keep it very brief today because I've made a commitment to the hashtag Amplify melanated Voices and wanting to lift the voices of people of color, particularly Black folks in this country right now. And I know we just released this episode fairly recently, but I could think of no other person who I wanted to hear from and I wanted to make sure his message was heard. So today is a re-release of our episode with Derek Dawson. Derek is a member of the Anti-Racism Commission of the Episcopal Diocese of Chicago and has served as its co-chair for three years. He's the training manager at the Chicago law firm of Barack, Verrazano, Kirschbaum, and Nagelberg in Chicago and is a graduate student and teaching assistant in English composition at Northeastern University. Derek was also a broadcaster and journalist in the United States Navy, where he served for eight years on ships in Asia and the Pacific. Also, if you would like to hear from other Black healers who have been on conversations with the wounded healer, you can check out the following episodes. Monika Black, episode 110, Lauren McBride, episode 98, Jade Perry, episode 66, Lisa Lackey, episode 58, Mishara Winston, episode 53, Jamila Kinney, episode 38, and Versanet Blackman, episode 34. So please take a really, really good listen to this episode. And let's all join in the fight against white supremacy. Hi, Derek. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. How are you?
1: I'm good, sir. I'm good. It's good to be with you.
0: I'm really excited to talk with you today. I told you before, I'm feeling feelings right now. So <laughs> it's been, been a little bit of a day and I have a feeling that spending time with you is going to be helpful to my mental health. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking to you too. It, it's been a trip on my end also.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for folks who are tuning in, we are recording this at the time of the lockdown in Chicago with the pandemic. So we've both been in our houses for several weeks now. Yeah. Too long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you be able to share with folks who you are and more about what you do?
1: I can try. Uh, My name is Derek Dawson. I am the co-program coordinator of Chicago Regional Organizing for Anti-Racism, otherwise known as Chicago ROAR. Chicago ROAR is a local program of Crossroads anti-racism organizing and training. We do institutional and systemic anti-racism and anti-oppression work throughout the country as Crossroads, and my primary responsibility as an organizer and trainer with Crossroads is to co-lead Chicago ROAR here in Chicago. I also do trainings workshops and other anti-racism work around the country. But my home is right here in Chicago, where I'm from.
0: Yeah. And and we met because one of my dear, 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 dear friends, Sarah Suzuki has been to the Crossroads trainings countless times. And she encouraged me to come saying how amazing it was. And I was just blown away. It was such a great training and I can't stop yapping about it.
1: I appreciate that. I love Sarah. Sarah is, has been a, an amazing supporter of Chicago Roar's work here in the city. So I'm really happy that she connected us and glad to know both of you.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on the podcast is you have a really cool journey, quite a winding journey, landing you into this position. And I'd, I'd love for you to share with folks how you, how you got here, starting wherever in your life feels relevant.
1: Uh, I can try to do that. It has been a long road every time I every time I try to talk about how I got here. It makes me feel ancient, but I will try. <laughs> um, so I grew up here in Chicago. I'm from the South Side. I grew up on the far South Side in a neighborhood called Burnside, around 91st and Cottage Grove. I went to um, grade school at the time. It was called Oliver Perry on 91st and University. And we were one of the first Black families in the neighborhood. In fact, when my brother and I started kindergarten, At Oliver Perry, we were the first black kids at the school pretty much. And Mm. by the time we graduated from the eighth grade, there were no white kids left in the school or Mm. in the neighborhood. That's how quickly white flight happened in that community. But I left there and went to a high school called Lindblom Technical High School in about 1980 and left Lindblom to study architecture at the University of Colorado at Boulder. When I got to Boulder, several things happened to interrupt my course. Uh, I'll go into detail if you uh, want me to in a moment. But I ended up changing my major because of basically a racial incident. And I changed my major to English. And after that, I left in the middle of college during a, a great recession in the 1982 or so. And I joined the Navy where I became a broadcaster and journalist on ships in the Pacific. I did that for about 10 years, traveled around the world and came back to California and began a career in law. I worked in law firms up and down the West Coast before returning to Chicago a couple of decades ago where I continued my career in law at uh, major law firms in Chicago as a training manager. I was also a Cradle Episcopalian. I was baptized in at St. Edmund's Episcopal Church in the early 1960s and after I moved back to Chicago, I felt an urge to go back to church. Mm. And so I landed at a church on the west side called St. Martin's Episcopal Church, where I am still a member. And uh, the priest at the church at the time was a man named Reverend Juan Reed, and he insisted that anyone who attend his church go to a crossroads anti-racism and organizing two and a half day uh, anti-racism workshop, the same workshop that I met you in.
0: Yep.
1: And uh, that is the moment that changed the course of my life, having a a new na- analysis and understanding of race and racism that I had never experienced before. And that's the beginning of what got me here.
0: Yes. I definitely want to go into that sort of analysis because I think it would be really helpful to break it down. But but you said that you'd be willing to go into details about that story that happened in college. I remember you sharing at the training, so I'd love if you'd share it with our listeners too.
1: Sure. Yeah, I can I can do that. Again, I was studying architecture, but most of your listeners who have gone to college remember having to take English 101. And uh, I came out of Limblum with what I understood to be a very good education. And I was a very good writer, I thought. And so the professor asked us all to write an essay. And I wrote an essay and handed it in with the rest of the class. And when he went to hand the essays back, he did not give mine to me. And I asked why. And uh, he said he wanted to see me in his office. And he was very blunt. He said, I do not believe a black boy from the South side of Chicago could write a paper of this quality. Hmm. And he said that if I really wrote that paper, then I needed to prove it to him. And it actually began one of the most shameful experiences of my life, even to this day, Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: he said, the way I want you to prove it to me is by writing another paper of the same quality on a topic of my choosing in my office while I watch. And it was a shameful experience, Sarah, because it never occurred to me that I had a choice. So Mm. I did exactly that. I sat down in his Mm. office. I wrote a paper. I still remember the paper, even though it's been over over Mm. 40 years. And I wrote the paper. It was a brilliant paper, I might add. (laughs) And through that experience, I actually got my first job as an adult, where I got a job in the English department at the University of Colorado at Boulder, Mm -hmm. where my responsibilities were to tutor functionally illiterate African American football and basketball players on the University of Colorado team. Interestingly enough, I also got arrested for my first time as an adult. When I was working in the library tutoring, I left the library and was promptly arrested. And I was arrested because I fit the description of someone who had stolen a white woman's purse in the library. So this was my experience as an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Colorado at Boulder.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that story. And at the time, because you, you said at the time you didn't really feel like you had a choice. How were you making sense of it all at that time versus how do you make sense of it now that you have all the wisdom and experience?
1: You know, having grown up on the, on the South Side, experiencing all kinds of racism, it was so normalized mm-hmm. that I didn't even recognize it as anything out of the ordinary. And I think by the time I got to the University of Colorado, I was so inured to it that it just seemed normal. And it really it really only made sense to me after I landed in that Crossroads two-and-a-half-day workshop some mm. 30 years later. Because I had had so many experiences, I understood racism to be just a question of white folks hating Black people, Mm -hmm. discrimination and racism was such a part of my life that I didn't even question it or think about it very much, except as just the water that I swimmed in. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to that training for Crossroads, you know, we talk about institutional and systemic racism and power. Mm
2: -hmm. And it
1: occurred to me in that workshop that perhaps my experience was not about an individual racist professor, at the University of Colorado,
2: mm-hmm. but I
1: understood that it had a much more to do with systems and power and how professors and other educators are trained through white supremacy to behave in certain ways. And yeah. I had been educated and socialized to behave in certain ways also. So what was there to question? It yeah. just didn't occur to me, other than to become angry and accept it as my lot in life. That was my response.
0: And I'm so glad that you brought up the term white supremacy too. The thing that was so, I guess, enlightening for me at the Crossroads training was the recognition of everything being white supremacy. Like as soon as I left the training, I was like, literally all of this is white supremacy. I can't stop seeing it now. But I'm also, I only went through the training once where Sarah has gone a trillion times. I can't articulate it yet. Can you tell the audience what is the connection between capitalism and white supremacy? Because in America, we live in a capitalist society.
1: Yeah, well, capitalism and racism are inexplicably linked, of course. If you think about the history of the United States, we use the framework of a woman named Andrea Smith, and she talks about three pillars of white supremacy. And in her context, the way she talks about white supremacy and those three pillars are genocide, capitalism, and orientalism as ah. coined by Edward Said. And what this means is that in order, to, in order to conquer another people, particularly if there are people on the places that you want to colonize, the first thing that you have to do is get rid of the people who are on that land. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, uh, those people were Native Americans, some 250 million Native American peoples on, on what we now call uh, North America. And so we talk about genocide as being one of those three pillars, according to Andrew Smith. Another pillar is capitalism, because once you clear the land of the people, the next thing you need to do is find uh, free and cheap labor in order to do the work, to work that land that you have now cleared out. And in the United States, uh, that land was worked by enslaved people who were brought over here as chattel from Africa. So that's the second pillar of white supremacy. And the third pillar of white supremacy is Orientalism. And again, that's a phrase that was coined by Edward Said in his book, Capitalism. And what he talks about is the othering, primarily of of Middle Eastern and Arab folk, but that is extended over over the history of the United States to include othering of all kinds of people, Asian people, Latino people, and all other groups. And so you combine those three pillars, and that is the foundation of the United States. And so everything has to be related to that history. Everything is born out of that history. And you talked about the fact that we're recording this conversation in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's so many examples of those three pillars included in that. Certainly, we Mm -hmm. see the othering of Asian-Americans who are being held responsible and oftentimes killed for inflicting uh, COVID on the United States and the world. We see capitalism and free and cheap labor in terms mm-hmm. of the. I think today they announced the unemployment rate has shot up within the last week to 6.6 million people. Mm-hmm. And the preponderance of those people are people of color who mm-hmm. make little money. In fact, they've been fighting for a minimum wage of $15, and the efforts were largely ignored until mm-hmm. COVID 19 happened. And then all of a sudden, we realized that our entire economy Mm -hmm. has been placed on the backs of those underpaid, underappreciated people. Mm -hmm. And, And none of this would have happened had the land of Native Americans not been stolen and those people having genocide committed against them. And we still have this notion that Native people are now extinct, which is, of course, patently ridiculous. But the notion of white supremacy is based on all of those factors, and again i think the current uh, pandemic is a perfect example of how white supremacy is underlying all of this
0: mhm and the fact that our president is struggling so much with the fact that we have to shut down the markets
2: right exactly
0: <laughs> everything exactly. is shut down and he wanted to get shit back up and running by easter and <laughs> one of the things that makes me so weary right now is the question of What is going to come of all this? Because our country is so just the idea of shifting to more social responsibility is just, you know, the Republicans and people with power will shudder at that. But that's what we have to do right now to survive this. And I just I'm really scared with what the people in power are going to do to not lose that power.
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, Historically, there have been many cases of fascist regimes using opportunities like this to seize even more problems. Again, Mm. the reality is that all of us are are commodified by a white supremacist system. And what that means is we have an opportunity now to rethink that commodification. I mean, if this is not a perfectly clear example of how we are all commodified and all damaged by white supremacy, I'm not sure what it will take. What, right. what concerns me is that there's a drive now, and I think we all experience it because of the socialization, there's a drive now to get back to normal. Right. We want to get back to work. Many of us are spending eight hours a day on conference calls, which amazingly we shifted to within a week's time. Mm-hmm. We are so used to being productive that what we want to do is get back to being productive. We wanna get back to normal. We wanna go back to work. And if we think about it, things were not working well before COVID-19 right. happened. Right. If things were working well, we would not have people who are uninsured. We would not right. have people who could not handle one week without pay before they are in, at risk of being evicted. There is nothing about our society that was considered normal that we need to go back to. But even now, as we sit here having this conversation, there's what feels like an internal drive to get back to normal without the recognition that normal was killing us. And that is not where we want to go. We do not want to go back to a white supremacist environment that will continue to kill us as commodified bodies under a white supremacist system.
0: And that's a really great way to help white people understand how they are affected by racism and white supremacy. Because as I've gotten more confidence in my ability to talk about some of these things, I still have struggled to really draw that line for some people. Like I can say why it's our responsibility, because we are the ones that are in power, and we have to give up some of that power, and we have to change. So I just I really appreciate this is why I wanted you on here because you make everything like this perfect little soundbite. You're so good at this. <laughs>
1: well, I, I'm so I'm so happy that you that you just mentioned what you did. It's it's clear mm-hmm. that you've attended our workshop because what you just said is a fundamental message,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is that white supremacy is not a conversation about how people of color are being harmed. It's a conversation about how we are all commodified and how we are all misshapen uh, by white mm-hmm. supremacy, not in the same way. People of color are impacted in ways that, you know, again, we talk about genocide and chattel slavery and othering that comes from Orientalism. That is a a long conversation that most of us are aware of to some extent. But what you said about white people being harmed by white supremacy and capitalism Mm -hmm. as well is something that we work really hard at Chicago War and Crossroads to communicate because we feel that until white folks understand, how they are also being destroyed by white supremacy, Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that these white supremacist structures will ever be dismantled. We all have our work to do, but for white people who think that this is just a conversation for people of color Mm
2: -hmm. and a problem
1: for people of color to solve, then people are mistaken. And the purpose of our work is to communicate that as you just did so perfectly.
0: And one of the other things that I really took away in relation to how white supremacy has hurt me is the internalized racial superiority. And I literally just a couple hours ago was talking to my therapist about, that's what you were saying, this desire to do. I need to be productive. I need to be accomplishing something. And that perfectionism that I have taken on so well is a product of this internalized racial superiority.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I think to put it simply, you know, there, there are two parts of the process. Again, it's an oversimplification, but I, I think it might communicate. The first thing that happens to all of us is that we are socialized into certain racialized groups. Uh, we are socialized into whiteness. Uh, we are socialized into groups of people of color. And then we develop racially according to those that process. And the next thing that happens is once we are racialized in that process, we are socialized to behave in certain ways according to that. And so white people are socialized to behave as supreme beings, and people of color are socialized to believe the messages of inferiority and live that out in various ways. And, and what you're talking about is coming to a fundamental understanding of that process Because white folks don't even understand that whiteness is a thing. White people uh, think about themselves as normal and standard and and good, Mm -hmm. and everything else exists in relation, usually in in inferior relation to that. Until white people start to come to the understanding that you just named, progress in dismantling systemic racism is going to be a long road.
0: Mm -hmm. And as we're talking, I'm always listening with the ear of the listener who might be becoming a little defensive right now. Maybe. I, I don't know. I think I've got some pretty woke people who listen to this, but I think using terms like white supremacy and racism and superiority might be might be a little get, get a little heated for people. Mm-hmm. So for for white people who are listening who are who are sort of pushing away from this right now how can we help frame this for them to invite them in to reflect on their own experiences of racism?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And and you're right about people being being often defensive. I think that defensiveness, I would say that defensiveness is part of that socialization process mm-hmm. is designed primarily to keep white supremacy in place. But okay. to take a step back, you know, we talk about white supremacy in those very specific and what may feel like stark terms because we are often socialized to believe that racism is about how we relate to each other as individuals.
2: Mm, um yes. and Most
1: of us believe that we are good people and uh, you know I don't have a racist bone in my body. Right. In fact my partner might be a person of color or a person of the opposite of a different race than I am. Right. And I love them to death. We may have children who are a different race and we love them to death and we would never harm them intentionally. But what we don't understand is that racism requires a misuse of power, right? Yes. And even the word power is something that people are often defensive about. And people say, you know, I I don't have any power. I'm a poor white person. I don't have any power. What about Oprah? Uh, What about the first black (laughs) president? Right.
0: Oprah solved racism. Way to exactly. go. Good job.
1: I, if, if racism exists, how do you how do you explain Oprah and the existence yeah. of Michael Jordan and all of that? My my best friend is black and he has got a much better job than I do. All of those things that we're socialized to believe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What we want people to understand is that there's a difference between race prejudice mm-hmm.
2: and racism. Yes.
1: There is nobody in the United States who doesn't have race prejudice. It's just part of our world. You cannot be in this country without receiving and internalizing messages around racial prejudice. I often argue that even if you immigrate to the United States, you cannot get here without absorbing the messages of racial prejudice based on who's flying the plane, based on who's carrying the luggage, based on who's cleaning up the airport as you walk through the terminal. Mm
2: -hmm. We all
1: have race prejudice. People of color have prejudices against other people of color. People of color have prejudice against white people. But the reality is that reverse racism just is not a thing because people of color do not have the kind of systemic Mm -hmm. and institutional power to control, manage resources that we all need to do life. And that's the crux of the definition. And so being part of a racist culture, a racist system, does not give us choices in the matter. You cannot choose, Sarah, as a white person in this country to not have an inordinate amount of unearned power and privilege just based on the fact that you are white. And that's something that's hard to come to terms with, but we hope that when we can remove it from the personal, that it's not about you as an individual solely, but it's about 500 plus years of history of the United States and the commodification and the genocide that I mentioned and chattel Mm -hmm. slavery and Orientalism and all of those things, we have inherited them. We have inherited a system and there's nothing we can do about it except acknowledge that and dismantle it. But if we don't acknowledge it, then we are actually maintaining. You know, even Max Kendi has a book out called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I think what he says is really powerful and very simple. There is no such thing as a non-racist. There is only racism and anti-racism. If you believe you are colorblind, if you believe you are non-racist, then you are operating in ways that intentionally support white supremacy.
0: Perfectly said, and I have a feeling that's going to be one of the pull quotes that my editor pulls out for us. <laughs> well, I feel like I could ask you a trillion questions and we could stay on this topic forever, but I'd I'd really like to experience a little a little bit of your heart in this as well, because that's something I was so drawn to in this training. And I'm curious for you, you are doing this day in and day out, and this is tough fucking work. How are you okay? <laughs> like, What do you do to take care of yourself in all of this? What brings you joy? What, what brings you peace?
2: <laughs> I
0: have
1: to be really honest with you, Sarah. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, a little bit. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, the honest answer to the question is, I don't do it very well. And I'm aware that I need to do better at it. But I can tell you that what I do do well, when I do well, is when I recognize that I am not alone. And that I am part of a community. And there is no surviving this without a community of people to do this work with. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so grateful to have Crossroads in Chicago Roar Mm -hmm. to do this work with, because it's not only people who are engaged in dismantling systemic racism, but they're people who have an analysis and understand what is necessary to be in healthy relationships with other people who are just trying to do our best to survive. I'm very much aware that I am also part of a white supremacist culture. I also live and breathe on land that was stolen from native peoples. I am also aware that white supremacy does not escape me and my life and all of the complications that that means. And the only way that I can survive that is to do the best I can to work to dismantle it as an individual and as part of a community. So for me, actually, you know how they talk, Sarah, about Mm self-care? Self-care is such a hot topic now. People talk about self-care in terms of I go to a spa, I read a Mm -hmm. book, I take my dog for a walk. For me, I think the reality is that doing anti-racism work is Mm. self-care. I think about my young nieces and nephews and the world that they are inheriting. I think about people who are suffering through this crisis in ways that I am not necessarily suffering. And it's not acceptable, and it breaks my heart. And it's not just about getting a job, it's not just about feeding or doing charity work, although that is important. If we really care about ourselves and others, then we have to do something in our own context, to address it. That, to me, is the best kind of Mm self-care. I'm fortunate that I have uh, friends and family who support me as an individual in the work, and I just try to lean into that wherever possible. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I didn't mention is that I'm also a fellow for ADA25 Advancing Leadership, which is a, um, a fellowship for lifting up leaders in the disabled community. So I'm also Mm -hmm. a person who lives with a disability. I had my right leg amputated several years ago and that has become part of my identity as a disabled person and it is a process and -hmm. it is a long, painful process. And sometimes I definitely feel sorry for myself and feel like what more am I supposed to take? Right. And I think that the choices are to just give in and stop living or to fight. And Mm -hmm. I find in my own experience that fighting for myself does not give me enough energy. But Mm -hmm. fighting for others is something I can wrap my head around because I would not be here had people not fought for me. Sometimes I'm not sure whether I talked about this in the workshop that you were in, Sarah, but sometimes I tell a story about some genealogy work that I have done.
0: Oh, I think you did. Yes, please tell this.
1: So my family is from uh, the South. My family came to Chicago during the Great Migration. My great-grandmother, big mama, Florence, was Mm -hmm. from Natchez, Mississippi. And she married a guy named Papu, Jerome Vessels, who was from New Orleans. And I knew that history, and I spent a little bit of time in Natchez and New Orleans when I was a child. But I dove into some genealogy work, and I actually found a plantation in Natchez, Mississippi. And as I was reading through the history of that plantation, I found the name of a man that I was actually named after. His name was Charles Vessels. My middle name is Charles. And as I read through that history, it turned out that Charles Vessels was an enslaved man on the plantation. It was called Monmouth Plantation. It still exists Mm. as a bed and breakfast in Natchez, Mississippi. Mm. But without going into all the details, what I read in that history was after Andrew Jackson Came through Natchez, Mississippi in around 1861. My uncle Charles Vessels ran off that plantation with four other enslaved people and joined the Union Army. And people ask me all the time about hope and what's the point of all this? Systemic racism seems so entrenched in our society. What is the point in trying to do something about it? And I, I try to answer the question by telling that story of Charles Vessels. We have an elder in this work. Her name is Ann Stewart. We love her. But she says often that I do this work because I have an obligation to my ancestors three generations back Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: my progeny three generations ahead. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's about the best self-care that one can do. Mm -hmm. And I try to focus on that. I admit that my own personal care for myself, I'm not as good at. Maybe you can help me with that, Sarah. (laughs) Um, Any
0: time <laughs> time
1: but it is it is true that we need community, we need family I embrace that as best I can. Part of my racialization as I talked about makes it very difficult to do that. Right. You know when you're a black man who's who's from the south side of Chicago having the kinds of experiences that I've already shared and many many more that I could not share it produces a kind of resistance based, Uh, Mm masculinity-based toxic mix of I have to handle this on my own. And that makes it very difficult to engage in the real kind of self-care and Mm self-healing that's needed. That's why toxic masculinity is such a problem. Mm -hmm. That's why homophobia is such a problem Mm -hmm. because it's not just about an individual makeup. It's about a socialization process based in white supremacy that makes us into these misshapen human beings, and that's the problem. Taking a hot bubble bath or a <laughs> no, walk with my dog may give some relief from that temporarily, Right. but until we start addressing systemic and institutional racism in all of the complicated, deep-seated ways that they are killing us, there is no such thing as self-care in a white supremacist deadly system such as the one that we're living in.
0: Yeah. I'm so struck by what you said about my anti-racism work is self-care. And I mean, that really begs the question that I'm curious uh, your answer, but I kind of can probably predict it at this point. But do you consider yourself a healer in terms of this work?
1: I I don't like to consider (laughs) myself a healer, Sarah, but as you can imagine, you probably know me well enough. But, But the answer is, I do feel that the work I do is healing work. Yes, I have another colleague, his name is James Addington, and he does a lot of work around racism and neuroscience. And one thing that he talks about is that racism destroys community. Racism destroys the environment. We could talk about environmental racism again with global mm. warming and how global warming is clearly race-based. It's not hard to look around and see that we are killing each other and killing the planet, Anti-racism work is the only thing that's going to heal the planet. It's the only thing that is going to make it possible for us to be together in community in any kind of an authentic way. Mm -hmm. And so anti-racism work as healing work. And since I have dedicated my life to anti-racism work and anti-oppression work, my only answer is has to be yes, I consider myself a healer. An imperfect one, to be sure. But yes, I do think my work is healing work and those who are doing much greater healing work through anti-racism than, than I do. But mm-hmm. I'd have to say yes, humbly.
0: Yay! I do
1: think my work healing work.
0: I'm glad to hear that. And how do you feel about the term wounded healer?
1: Oh, Sarah. <laughs> if you just got me to admit that my work is healing work, I think I've already shared enough to say that I am involved in a lifetime of healing myself. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think I could only do this work if I recognize that there's a lot of damage that has been done to me and others in my community and all of us
2: Mm -hmm. as
1: white people and people of color, as gay people, as queer people, as trans people, all of us, nobody escapes a white supremacist world without being wounded and mm-hmm. damaged in profound ways. And so I, as a healer, I am wounded like everyone else and the work I'm engaged in has to do with healing myself, uh, healing others and healing the planet to the extent I can, I can help with that.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm so struck by the words that you're saying I can imagine if someone were just reading this off the page, they might think that you were negative and depressing and all of these sorts of things. But there is, it must just be a healing energetic quality that you have that really, when you express this to me, it's just hopeful and inspiring.
1: Yeah. I feel that way. You know, we have a president now who comes on television lately every night and he tells a series of lies. He trades in hate Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and racism.
1: And he says, I do this because I want to sound positive.
0: (laughs) Did he seriously say that?
1: He seriously said it. He said, "I I want to give people hope.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And I think that we have a history in this country. Well phrased, pretty sounding lies that kill. And I believe that sometimes the way to heal is to be honest,
2: mm-hmm. to tell the truth. Which is often
1: painful. To what is killing us so that we mm-hmm. can actually live. Mm-hmm. And it is serious. And I have a tendency to be a serious person. But I can tell you that there would be no point to any of this without humor, or without the ability to laugh, without the ability to find joy, without the ability to experience life in all of its beauty. You know, a couple of my colleagues just had babies and I was on a Mm -hmm. Zoom call and saw the babies today. Hello, Ali. What could be more beautiful than seeing a little baby smiling and Googling? But but what could be more awful than killing the planet Mm
2: -hmm. that he
1: needs to grow into? I find that as positive Mm -hmm. as positive can be right and i am 56 years old now and it is hard work as you said and there is no time for pretty little lies that make mm-hmm. us feel good while killing us
0: mhm and from a psychology perspective just thinking about cuz he when we don't need to devolve into this just being a, <laughs> i hate trump session but the fact that he believes these lies and believes them to the point that he thinks he is extending hope just tells me so much about how sadistic and narcissistic injury was a part of his early life. And he's been crushed underneath the weight of that.
2: Yeah,
1: I agree. But more importantly for me, Sarah, one of the reasons I don't talk about Trump very much is because I think that can be another trap. Mm
2: hmm. Mm hmm.
1: It can be a trap in that we put all of this on the back of Trump, and mm-hmm. in some ways it lets us off the hook. Yeah. The reality is that Trump would not exist if some 340 million Americans
0: mm-hmm.
1: have not been wounded, right? have not been damaged, have not been shaped into racist ways of being. Right. I mean, think about it. How could a man who claims to be the leader of this country blame a virus?
2: Mm-hmm. on Asian people mm-hmm.
1: and still be in office.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is not him being damaged. That is right. us being damaged.
0: That's such a great point.
1: And the other problem is that if we put it all on Trump, then when Trump is out of office, and please God, let that be soon.
0: Please God.
1: <laughs> then we will tell ourselves that racism has gone away right? because Trump has gone away. Just like we told ourselves that racism went away when Mm -hmm. Obama was elected president yep, and racism has been part of this culture in the United States since before this was the United States Mm -hmm. and pinning that on one person without recognizing that this is a culture of white supremacy that has commodified us all. Mm -hmm. And the reason that Trump is in office is because we are acting like commodified bodies. We will miss the point and we'll be having the same conversation 30 years from now, Trump, I'm sad to say, is not the problem. Mm -hmm. He's a symptom of the problem. But every day when he's on camera, and I ask myself all the time, it's a rhetorical question, but how does this continue? It's not because of him. It's because of us. It's because of white supremacy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. (sighs) I just want to let that breathe for a minute because that was really, I think that's especially important for, you know, A lot of people who listen to this podcast, I think, are very liberal. And if we are focusing our efforts at the wrong target, we're not going to get anywhere. It's just like if you have some sort of disease and you're just treating the, you know, the rash that comes because you have that disease, you're not actually curing anything. So I think that's an excellent point that people will really take away from this.
1: I think neoliberalism is one of the best things that have ever happened for the support of white supremacy.
0: Mm. Say more, please.
1: You know, during the during the election, I was I was an Elizabeth Warren supporter. Mm-hmm. I went through the whole list. I started with Kamala Harris, and and as all the people of color dropped out, I was with Elizabeth Warren, and and then when Bernie Sanders and uh, Joe Biden became the the two who had left, I was fascinated by the words I was hearing, particularly from a lot of African American politicians who were saying things like, I support Joe Biden because uh, he's been good for Black people and he was Obama's vice president. And what I kept thinking was the difference between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, and believe me, I've got issues with Bernie Sanders, but writ large, the difference between a Joe Biden and a Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden as a neoliberal will tolerate racism and white supremacy. Mm,
2: mm -hmm. And in
1: tolerating it, it goes back to what Ibram X. Kendi said, there is no such thing as being a Mm non-racist. You are either anti-racist or you are supporting racism. And I think neoliberalism by its definition tolerates racism. It says, I don't see color. Uh, It says, I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. It says it's all about the individual. And if an individual talks a good game, then they are good for the world. And that is not the truth. It goes back to what you were asking about being positive. There is nothing positive about a person who will say, I will lead this nation by being lukewarm about racism and white supremacy. I will lead this nation by uh, having a, what's the word that they were using? By being a, being a moderate.
0: Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. We need a moderate. Mm-hmm.
1: What the hell is a moderate in the face of recent white <laughs> supremacy? Yeah, yeah. That's like white people standing under a lynching tree and saying, "Well, there's good on both sides." Right. Fuck neoliberalism. Yes. It's like saying, "Well, let's listen." To- it does not make any sense, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. and it
1: makes people feel good. But what is the value again of making people feel good about saying, mm-hmm. "Well"? People don't really need, I mean, you know, a $15 minimum wage, it might be helpful for some people, but it's really too much to ask for. I think that's moving too fast. I don't understand why they want emancipation immediately. Why can't they just wait? Mm -hmm. That, to me, is the mark of neoliberalism. I don't see color. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I don't see race. And yet, enforcing, writing, and pushing policies that continue to marginalize people of color, give unearned power and privilege to white people and maintain the status quo around power.
0: And I'm guessing Joe Biden doesn't even know any better, which is, I think, worse.
1: He doesn't know any better because his best friend is Barack Obama.
0: Right. So how could any of this impact him? Right, I have a black friend, as you said earlier.
1: My Mm -hmm. child is black.
0: Mm -hmm. My husband is Latino. Mm -hmm.
1: My daughter is gay.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm cool. Right. I'm exempt from the work. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: Or worse than exempt, I've done the work.
2: Mm -hmm. And Mm since I have
1: decided that I'm a good person, then my work has already been done. Mm -hmm. The policies I support, how I vote... What Mm -hmm. I do with my money and my power is not a question. In fact, I'm going to deny the power that I have and pretend like I don't have any in support of supremacy.
0: As I'm thinking about, you know, where we are in terms of coronavirus and COVID, we really have choices about how we're going to engage in the world after this. And I think one of the important things about making the decisions about how we're going to behave moving forward is... It involves how are we making meaning of why is this happening right now? And I'm curious if, if for yourself, you've come to some meaning making around why are we in this position right now?
1: It's a good question. I'm I'm with everybody else. I'm I'm holed up in my apartment, spending eight hours a day on Zoom calls, and I am not exempt from asking where is this going to end. At. And I'm one of those people who are immunocompromised, and mm-hmm. so I can't leave my house, and I'm deathly afraid of where mm-hmm. this is going to end for me as a person, because again, I'm human. The people who are infected and people who are sick are going to get closer and closer to us until we are all very close to somebody who is going to suffer mm-hmm. an awful, awful death. Yeah. And we have to deal with that while also dealing with the cosmic question that you're asking about. And I don't claim to have any answers whatsoever. But what I, I do feel is that, first of all, this virus would not be impacting us if it weren't for how we behave as human beings and our relationship to nature and the earth. That's one thing that we need to understand.
0: Yeah.
1: Another thing to understand is that even if we accept that this was inevitable in some kind of way, the virus is not the same as our lack of ability to respond to it. The fact that the people who are going to suffer the most are poor people. People of color, people who work hard for a living, people who are out there right now trying to figure out my rent is already a day late. What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. The amount of depression and suicide and isolation that are going to impact us have less to do with the virus than they do with the commodification that I talked about in white supremacist Mm -hmm. culture. Because we have invested our future in a system that is not sustainable in the face of a virus, but we were dying three weeks ago before we knew about this virus. Right. And it is spreading all over the world because neoliberalism and capitalism and white supremacy is what we have invested in and it is not sustainable. And my prayer is that what comes out of this is some understanding that going back to normal is not the direction that we should be going in. And I pray that those of us who survive this pandemic will help us go in that direction.
0: And all the people said, amen. <laughs> wow, well, Derek, I knew it was going to be an amazing conversation and and it has even sur- surpassed that expectation. So I'm just I'm just so grateful you took the time to spend with me today.
1: I really do appreciate the invitation. The next time we talk, we'll have drinks and uh, engage in some lighter fare.
0: There you go. There you go. Well, before you go, would you share uh, C. Roar's website so people know where to find you and at least people in Chicago can do the trainings and and then that can connect them to the other Crossroads organizations, right?
1: Absolutely. I'll give a couple of uh, websites. One Please. is crossroadsantiracism.org. And that will take you to our Chicago ROAR webpage, which is CROAR.org. And uh, you can find us there. Again, my name is Derek Dawson. You can find me on LinkedIn and you could also find ROAR there. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, Just type in ROAR and you will find our calendar of workshops and other conversations. And we are happy to have a conversation about how you and or your organization can work towards dismantling systemic racism. I would love to engage with you in that conversation.
0: And after this, I bet you a lot of people are going to be wanting that.
1: I hope so. Let let me say that when you talk about healing again, and what brings me joy is Mm -hmm. I can say with all sincerity, I spent 10 years in the military and 20 years in corporate law. And this work is much more difficult than any of that work was. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And this work has given me life in a way that Mm -hmm. I never could have gotten without it. And I have yet to experience anyone who hasn't engaged with this work who hasn't said as difficult as it is I'm so happy to have evolved to a place where I can engage and work in work and conversations that are actually life giving mm-hmm. and how where is it that we can find things to do with our time and our energy that are actually life giving i find that to be a gift that i treasure and i'm grateful
0: Thank you again to Derek for sharing your wisdom and experience on this podcast. If anything that Derek has said has inspired you, I highly encourage you to go check out Chicago Roar. They're on Facebook and they also have a website and we'll have all these linked in the show notes. Also, we will have some resources for folks who are interested in taking more anti-racist action, whether that's education within yourself and supporting local and, and national organizations that are in this fight to end white supremacy so thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation today thanks as always to Andrea Klunder the Creative Imposter Studios for editing to Liam O'Donnell for the album art and to Ben Mueller for our theme music until next time bye-bye